city's been so quiet since the boys in green went back. But it only took them three months to put Porton on the map. Yes, the stadium's never heard the sound of cheers in all its years. When the players come on the field, the thousands singing in their ears. Green is the colour, soccer is the game. We're the Portland Timbers, and winning is our aim. So let's give all of the boys a cheer for the Portland Timbers will be here. Welcome to the Green is the Color podcast. And what excites me most about today's guest is that he followed his interests and curiosity. And that took him from just up the road in Longview, Washington, to joining the sports department at the Oregonian, to eventually covering the upstart 1975 NASL Portland Timbers, and then all over the world working in the game as Director of Communications for the U.S. Soccer Federation. He'll have more to share in a moment, but I first want to welcome the first beat reporter covering the Portland Timbers, John Polis. John, how are you? Great, Billy. Thanks for asking me. What a treat to be on your show. Well, thank you. I'm at the, the treats really for me because... Um, just when I get to your bio in a second and some of these questions and the things you've seen, um, it's really second to none. Uh, I'll read the bio now and then we can, uh, people can hear from you. That's the part I like. Sure. Yeah. Okay. John started his soccer and journalism journey in Longview, Washington. At the age of 16, John was working for the Longview Daily News. His post-secondary education started at Lower Columbia College before he transferred to the University of Washington. After graduating with a degree in journalism, John went to work with the Longview Daily News before serving, uh, excuse me, before serving uh, the first two of six years in the U.S. Navy, which included duty in the Vietnam conflict. He returned to the Daily News in 1972, but in 1974 was offered a job in Portland in the sports department of the Oregonian. John became the paper's first beat writer for then new NASL site, Portland Timbers. John held that position from 1975 until 1977, at which point he became the Timbers TV analyst for KPTV Channel 12. In addition to his time covering the game, John refereed soccer in the Portland area from 1978 to 1986. In 1980 to 1982, the Louisiana Pacific-owned Portland Timbers hired John as Director of Public Relations and Marketing. After a stint in the Oregon Sports Hall of Fame as first Executive Director from 1986 to 1988, John became U.S. Soccer Federation Director of Communications, where he was the primary worldwide media contact for U.S. soccer and traveled to the U.S. men's and women's national, sorry, with the U.S. men's and women's national teams from 1989 to 1993. During that time, John was the Director of Public Relations for, I'm sorry, from 1993 to 1999, John was the Director of Public Relations for Umbro USA out of Greenville, South Carolina. After that, John moved to become Associate Commissioner of the United Soccer Leagues, the first minor league system for the pro game in the United States. Since then, John's coverage of the game has included being a researcher for Fox Sports coverage of the 2018 Men's World Cup and the 2019 Women's World Cup. I'm happy to welcome John Pullis. Thanks, Billy. That sounds like a guy who was either really accomplished and well-traveled or he couldn't hold a job, one of the two. (laughs) Right. Maybe both. Yeah. Right. Well, no, it's great. And, and, you know, as I'm reading through that, sometimes when I read these bios and you, I mean, it's, it's not everything of course, but it, sometimes I, I, I pause because I actually can't not think this is amazing. Well, uh, you know, a lot of it's, you just, 
you follow your interests and follow your opportunities. And I was fortunate to be in the right place at the right time a couple of times and uh, found myself uh, right in the middle of some pretty exciting stuff there for a few years. Yeah. I, I mean, every phase that, that you went through, there was something pretty significant happening, I think, in American soccer. Um, and that's not to mention, you know, uh, your service in Vietnam as well, which is when you think, you know, we can't always separate soccer from culture, culture from soccer, etc. Yeah. Um, yeah. Uh, home ported in Japan with the Navy and uh, spent two years active duty, came back. Uh, my main interest, I, I was an, uh, a, an athlete of sorts. I played fast pitch men's fast pitch softball for quite a few years. And I was dying to get back and start playing again. And uh, yeah, about that, about that same time, uh, I got the job at the daily news and then found myself down in Portland. So let me back up just a little bit. You got, uh, you, I mean, we, there's a lot of interesting stuff here, but I want to start at somewhat the beginning. How did you end up with the Longview Daily News at 16 years old? You know, uh, it was a small town daily, town of about uh, 20,000 people. Um, my mother knew everybody. She worked downtown and uh, she used to sell clothing to the assistant city editor, um, a lady uh, who used to come in and see her. And she said, and she knew that I was taking journalism in high school. And she said, you know, you might have Johnny come down and fill out an application because we hire copy kids in the summer. So uh, I went down there and got a summer job and they were terrific down there. They not only had us run errands, but they had us writing stories. So there I was composing stories on the old Underwood typewriter back then. Yeah. And uh, the, the sports editor took me under his wing. And, you know, within about six months or so, I was doing I was covering high school games, football, basketball and things like that. So I got an early start. Yeah. And getting bylines as well. Right. Yeah, that was, a, that was a big thrill when you're in your teens and you get a byline. Yeah. And so so you after college, you went you back to the Daily News, but you went from there, as we said, to become the first beat reporter for the Oregonian for the Portland Timbers. I'm curious, how did that happen? And uh, how did you get the job covering specifically the Timbers? And what was that like? Like in 1975, what did it entail to cover a new team? Well, I was hired. I was hired. uh at the Oregonian as a desk man, which means a headline writer and an editor. And so, you know, I, I would occasionally get a chance to cover a, a real event. But most of the time I was putting the Sunday paper together, the Sunday section and doing editing work. Um, I would occasionally get assigned to a trailblazer sidebar or uh you know, some special event. I actually covered boxing for a while. And, um, but around that time, um, there were, there was the World Football League and, and the World Football League team was going down. Some other failed pro ventures were still in the minds of a lot of people. And so here comes this soccer team uh, to town and there wasn't anybody on our staff that knew anything about soccer. So everybody was kind of looking around thinking, who's going to get this, you know? Um, and I wanted desperately to have a beat of my own. So I kind of trundled up to the sports editor's desk one day, an old guy named Don McLeod, who was our sports editor. And I said, Don, you know, I said, I don't know what you're going to plan with soccer, but I said, 
if you haven't made up your mind yet, I'd like to maybe volunteer. And he had a real gruff little voice. He was 75 if he was a day. Well, John, let me think about it. You know, and so Don took off and about a week later, he was coming by and he'd always stop by your desk and say hello in the afternoon. We all reported to work at 3.30 in the afternoon. We worked that swing shift. And uh, he was talking to me about something and he walked away and he said, oh, John, by the way, he goes, you'll do the soccer this summer, you know? And so I don't know what happened. I probably turned away and was going, yeah, you know, but there I was with a beat. Um, the, the team was announced in January and its first game was in May. They had no team, no roster, anything. And Polis is given the beat. Um, Mick Hoban was the first player to arrive, and I went over and interviewed him. Uh, he and his wife, Linda, had arrived early before all the other players. And Mick kind of took me under his wing, explained a lot of things. He knew I was a rookie at soccer. And, um, um, you know, three, four, five weeks later, a whole bunch of players arrived, along with Coach Vic Crow, um, his assistant, Leo Crowther. We had five players from Wolves, two or three from Aston Villa, one from Birmingham City, one from Port Vale, one from Coventry. They were from all over the place, but these were players that Vic knew, and he was able to get most of them on loan. And so from then on, it was it was just a fast study for me. Uh, they sent me up to cover a exhibition game between the San Jose Earthquakes and the Seattle Sounders. And the Sounders were coached by John Best, and uh, the great Everton great Jimmy Gabriel was on the team. And the game was played at Lincoln High School in Tacoma. It was a, it was a exhibition game very early, maybe March, early March. So I drove up there and went down and introduced myself. And, and they're saying, John, hey, great to meet you, John. Yeah, you'll do great, you know. Any questions? <laughs> <laughs> and I had a million of them. And they were explaining what a corner kick was and what a goal kick was and all this stuff. That was my introduction uh, to the pro game. And, uh, you know, uh, our sports department gave it a shot. You know, they were they were sending me out on feature stories to cover practices, to do feature stories. Um, and, you know, the team started slowly and everybody kind of knows the story. We built up, we won the Western Division Championship and it was a slow build. Um, the fans just built up very, very slowly. Uh, I often explained it was like we were able to grab new fans from all over the place. I, I used to say professional wrestling fans from Friday night decided to give soccer a try along with a lot of other groups. Mm -hmm. And pretty soon everybody had enough knowledge they could go and have a great time. And it was an exciting team. Um, uh, as far as the uh, the uh, I I got into this I got into the swing of it pretty fast because the players were so helpful they would answer any question and Coach Vic Crow uh, couldn't make enough time for me I was a pest he used to call me a pest but oh. he <laughs> he enjoyed my company and we actually spent a lot of time together he would explain the nuances 
um, no question was too silly to ask him. So um, I have a lot. Mick and Vic were really um, encouraged me a lot in those early days. Yeah, you couldn't have met a better person first um, no. than Mick. I mean, that's you know, I'm, I'm happy that worked that way. He's the soul of the earth, and we also we wound up working at Umbro together later on. You know, so. right? And we're gonna we're we're definitely going to talk about that. Um, I, before I ask the next question, there's something I didn't put in here. Um, so I apologize for kind of catching you off guard here. But one thing I've said at the start when we were talking and, and I've said before is how this project started to thank people who built the game here. And I need to explicitly state that that includes journalists, because when I go to research and when I go to learn what happened, um, there are databases full of journalism, full of writing you know, records. Um, and that exists. And so we can put together, we can ask questions just like you. We can be curious and learn about it. And without good journalism, without journalism, it wouldn't be, it wouldn't be possible. There's, we, we'd lose our culture. Yeah. And um, we were a brand new town. Nobody had ever seen the sport before. And that includes the, uh, the assignment editors. You know, the assignment editor was a guy named Dale McKean, a baseball guy, but, mm -hmm. uh, he he was he had an open mind about it and uh um they all trusted me to go out and find out what the sport was about and uh it, incredibly it was pretty much a good news story the whole summer you know right. and uh you know i went from writing headlines to having the best sports story in quite a few years in portland yeah. and that was before the blazers won their first title so uh the 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 town was hungry for a champion. Yeah. And so so when you covered the Timbers that first year in 75, I'm curious, this is a kind of a personal question, but what was the physical press box like? And what was it like physically to cover a game itself during that time? Yeah, the, the, the press box was rickety. And yeah. uh, it was up on uh, the roof and you had to actually climb up a ladder uh, on the back inside wall of the stadium. You climbed up in a ladder and then there was a catwalk that went across the roof. And these were the, the press box was like a dugout like structures uh, where you you walked in and then you walked down a bunch of steps and there was two rows, you know, and that thing had been there forever. You know, um, Multnomah Stadium, as it was called back in the old days, it was right by the Multnomah Athletic Club, um, was the site of every University of Washington, Oregon football game was in Portland and sometimes Oregon State. And uh, um, they used to race dogs in that stadium way, way back, you know. So that stadium was built for a bunch of different purposes. The press box was fine. You got you had good sight lines and everything, but everything was really, really old. And that in 75, that was before the first of probably, what, four? renovations that stadium has undergone since 75. Um, so yeah, it was, uh, it was interesting. The turf was awful. It was the old tartan brand right. product. And uh, it was rough like sandpaper. Uh, goalkeepers wore full sweatpants in the games. Um, I used to say there was a seam that went, <laughs> there was a fault in the, there was a seam down the left side and, Willie Anderson was so accurate, he could play the seam all the way down the, the left side, and he knew it wouldn't go out of bounds. So, uh, so it was, and, and they had the baseball cutouts, you know, in the 
the dirt yeah. and all that. So it was pretty rickety. And covering the team in 75, uh, you know, when teams came here, it was easy to do your job. But what about when the Timbers went on the road? Yeah, the, uh, they, they didn't send me on the road. Um, going on the road with a team was kind of like a special deal back in 75, obviously because of budgets and things. There was never any question. University of Oregon football, basketball, the beat writers, the columnists, those are perks that they had. They got to travel with the team and go. Um, the, the, the Timbers started winning game after game after game after game. Um, I did go up to Seattle <laughs> and cover the Sounders game. Uh, but my first road trip with the team was um, Soccer Bowl, 75, down in San Jose when they went to the final. The next year, we had a new sports editor. And uh, when the season was over, he came up to me and he said, John, pack your bags. You're going on the road with the team next year. Yeah. And so I went to every road game the next year in 76. So here's something also. I've talked to some players about this, but that was, I mean, this is kind of a, not a complaint, but as an issue with soccer in this country is it's hard when players come here from other countries like Europe, for example, where everything's so close. Nothing's close here, especially when you're you're playing for one of the teams on the West Coast. Travel's not easy, and it wasn't easy for the NASL guys, and it's got to be the same for for you. That's those those aren't easy trips. Well, um, I was a young man back then. <laughs> I loved it, you know. But, but the players, most of the players, hadn't been on airplanes very much because they were all from the UK, and uh, they got a kick out of it. They were joking on the plane about taking off, and a bunch of guys used to. There were a bunch of. Um, they they had a lot of fun on the airplanes, the players, you know, and they were um, they would laugh and joke. And as the team was taken off, they would beat their feet on the ground to help the, team, the plane get off the ground and uh, had it, got a big kick out of it. So they were like a bunch of kids on on airplanes when they went. Um, um, but like I say, I didn't have much experience on the road the first year. So what? Um... And that still blows my mind a bit that, I mean, it makes sense when you explain how it kind of came about, but as a sitting here in 2023, thinking no road coverage um, for something like the Portland Timbers is pretty wild. But um, some of the other things, what was it like covering some of the more significant moments um, in history that happened that year? Like the first game, uh, the Tony Betts overtime goal, soccer bowl. Uh, how did you see the city? Um, you've talked a little bit about how did you see them embrace the team and, and the team them? The first game, nobody knew how many people would come. Um, the general manager was a former NFL player called Don Paul, um, who was from Fife, Washington. And uh, uh, he was very, very enthusiastic. You know, the Timbers were owned by like 300 individual shareholders who I think ponied up about a thousand each. And that was all they had. And... Uh, you know, to get through the summer and players were on loan. Um, but uh, the first game, it started raining two days before the game and it did not stop. And uh, it was, and I mean, throwing it down. And you know what that means, being a Portland guy, you know, yeah. when it decides to really rain and it just didn't stop. It rained the whole game. Players were slipping and sliding. There was puddles on the field etc but uh five or six thousand turned out 
it was considered an okay crowd for um, a first game and miserable conditions, you know. Um, and so uh, the Timbers, I think we lost that game. It was pretty close. Um, over the course of the next few weeks, there was a couple more home games and the attendance started to creep up a little bit. And then of course, then they started to win. And uh, it was a, it was a routine that they had a Dixieland band in the stadium that would be playing before the game outside and inside. Uh, the players did all kinds of things to welcome, um, to welcome the fans, uh, you know, on, uh, on Mother's Day, they, they handed out roses to all the ladies that walked in. Players did out there mm -hmm. before the game, doing stuff like that. Um, and then, of course, after every game, Don Paul invited fans everywhere to come to the Benson Hotel and meet the team. Players had to go. Right. <laughs> and, uh, uh, and so that became a big meeting place. And everybody felt like they knew these players up close and personal, you know. So and it was quite unique. Yeah, and as the attendance grew, the at some point, right, the the stadium couldn't hold everybody who wanted to come. Well, right at the end, it was it was tough. Um, before the regular season ended, I think we had a couple of crowds of eighteen, nineteen thousand in there. That was getting up there. I think the place held about twenty something, twenty five, twenty six. Um, when they made the when they made the playoffs. Uh, which meant going up against Seattle. Portland got the home game. And uh, that was when they decided to truck in the portable bleachers. And if you can imagine, did you ever see baseball in that stadium, Billy? I did, yes. Yeah. Well, yeah. out where left field was, is they had a whole set of bleachers that they would put up back there. And all the way out in the outfield on that side, they did that for, for college football games. And they could pack over 30,000 in there. Um, they only had enough for about 27.5 for the Seattle game, and they sold it out in three hours. Oh, really? and, uh, so that game was huge. Uh, that was when it was getting really full. It was a mm -hmm. tough ticket to get. And then they won that game. They went to the semifinals against St. Louis. They hosted that one. Again, in the rain, puddles on the field. 33,000 people showed up for that game. And um, it was memorable. <laughs> Unbelievable. To the final. And so after that season, um, in 70, I'm sorry, 77 to 1980, you're the TV analyst for KPTV. Uh, yeah. I'm curious, first of all, just to think now that there would be a, having a TV analyst for a team that's three years old in, in that league, that's a big step. That, that's important. I think for, I'd like to think it is for exposure, but how is the move to television different than um, what you were doing? I left the Oregonian. I decided uh -huh. that I wanted to try public relations instead of uh, sports writing. I want to try something else. And I was offered a job with a, a company in Portland, I took it. And um, I wasn't covering the team anymore. And, uh, but I knew a, a guy named Jimmy Jones, who was the sports director at KPTV who knew me from my days covering the team. Uh, he also got, went way back and knew some of my family back in the days when he worked up in Longview. Jimmy was also the longtime public address announcer for the Blazers. 
uh, at the Memorial Coliseum during all those years. Anyway, Jimmy did Timber Games and KPTV, their, their regular package was maybe do five road games during the year. So they would sign a package with the Timbers and they would do those road games and we'd go on the road. And he called me up one day how would you like to work the television games with me? And I said, Jimmy, I'm not a, I'm not a TV guy. And he said, ah, you'll do fine. He says, you know, more now than anybody else around here, you know, with respect to guys that aren't in soccer. So I said, okay, I did it. <laughs> it was a lot of fun. We would travel the day before and, um, you know, I, we did games from giant stadium in New York and, uh, all over the place, Dallas, California, et cetera. Uh, and so uh, I was asked 77, 78, and 80. I don't know what happened in 79, whether they didn't do games or whether there was no package. I can't remember, but uh, I, I did television for those three seasons. And so 77, did they did they do you a favor and send you to Team Hawaii? <laughs> they they did. <laughs> we didn't get a chance to go to that game. No. Um, the uh, and and you ask about the switchover, you know. Uh, I I guess I could always talk pretty well on my feet, and I had a feel for the game, and I just described it the way I saw it, you know. I think probably a lot of my analysis was more about repeating what people just saw on the screen back then, uh, you know. But um, it worked okay, and of course I had a good guidance from Jimmy on what to do and all that. Uh, my my most nervous parts were the open when we're down on the field, you know, and you got to figure out exactly what you're going to say. But right, uh, it was a, just a, for a young guy like me back then. It was a blast doing it. I got to think, um, even when I'm thinking of the time and how we're building the game and how how many people you you know don't know much about the game. Even the fact that you're repeating what they're seeing on the field is doing a a service to people because it's kind of pointing out the things that are important or even reinforcing. Yes, you just saw that, and so you're building knowledge, even though maybe you're not, you know, saying anything that they, like you said, they didn't see. Well, most people didn't even know what an offside was, right? You know, I mean, just think about that. Still don't. And, uh, so, and then we had the 35 yard offside line back then too, um, which uh, I, I'm sure your listeners maybe know about that, but if they don't, it was a line 35 yards out from the goal, and offside could only be, only be called inside that 35 yard line. Yeah, if, if the attackers were far enough away, more than thirty-five yards away, they could be anywhere, and there would the flag wouldn't go up. So uh, we we occasionally had to tell them about that, you know, and and uh, um, and then soccer announcers back then, I can't even remember whether Jimmy was this, but as late as nineteen late eighties, when when I was at the federation. Announcers had the tendency to call a hockey play-by-play. -play. And, uh, you know, tell me, oh, and it's out for a Portland throw-in. Well, people see that. Right. You know, they don't say that for basketball, right? It's out of bounds. And the next out of bounds is for some. But they yeah. would do it for soccer, you know. And I, I used to have to get with play-by-play -play guys and say, just let the game, get the game flow a little yeah. bit, you know. There's there's so much we have to talk about, but I've got to take a quick tangent and ask you, yeah. what did you think of the shootouts, the 35-yard shootouts? It was exciting. It was exciting. Uh, it was thought of as gimmicky by most soccer purists. 
But even today, we have people talking about how to settle ties. And if, if every year we hear something about going back to something like the 35-yard line shootout, which was basically the ball was back a certain point. What, maybe? It was 35 yards. 35 yard line. Yeah, excuse yeah me, five seconds, 35 yards. Five seconds, goalkeeper come out, player takes the ball and goes in. And we had some great, skillful players in the league in those days. Carlos Alberto, the great Carlos Alberto from Brazil, used to kick it up, bounce it up once or twice, and then try to loop it over the goalkeeper's head. You know, they had, people had different ways of doing it. Um, so the league at one point, I can't remember what year, they just decided they didn't want, uh, they didn't want ties. And uh, 77 was the first year. 77, yeah. And that was, uh, interestingly, John Carbray was the general manager at um, the Dips who came up with that. And he's he's the person who brought the Portland Mavericks uh, with Bing Russell to Portland. John, John Carbray before that was at the Earthquakes. Right. He was the general manager of the Earthquakes, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> later on. This actually a later, a little bit later, but really? nice guy. Yeah, did a lot for the for the soccer as well. I mean, just for promoting sports as well. Yeah. Um, so there's a period in here before... Uh, before you go back to the Timbers we talked about, but in 1980, you returned to the team. You re returned this time working for the Timbers. The ownership group, Louisiana Pacific, brings you in, or uh, maybe Vic had something to do with that. And you come back as the director of public relations and marketing. Um, as we all know, those were the last three seasons the Timbers were in the NASL. Um, what was different about being in that position with the team, right? A little more internal. Yeah, and how was it covering... Um, and promoting a team that was starting on the road to the end. I had a, I had a job, a public relations job in Portland uh, around that time. And I got hired away to Boise, Idaho um, with a company there. And I was there about a year and a half. And then Vic came back as the coach. You know, he, he was there in 75 and then came back in uh, right around 80 in there came back and I get this call one day from Vic and he goes, John, Vic, he says, if we could make it right, would you come back? We can use you here, you know? Mm -hmm. And, you know, Louisiana Pacific owned the team then. They brought me in, but it was Vic's idea that I should be part of the organization. So I came back and uh, really, it was something I really, really wanted to do. And the, the team had probably its most solid ownership about that time. And in fact, the team ceased operations in 1982, but it was more the league ceasing operations than it was um, Louisiana Pacific. I think they could, th they could see that there was, there were issues. And so some teams drop out in 82, the rest in 84, but uh, shoot, the players loved it. We used to fly on Louisiana Pacific's corporate aircraft to games you know, we had charter planes and all that, and it was, it was great. And so, uh, yeah, that's interesting because you're right. The the league just sort of started, you know, limp to the end from there the last two years. Um, yeah. And I go ahead. Yeah, th there were no spending limits, so you know the Cosmos owned by Warner Communications could spend what they wanted, um, and your spending was only limited to how deep the pockets of your owner was, and there was no limits. And a lot of teams, in order to keep pace with the Joneses, went into Hawk 
to get players and brought they brought players over on loan they bought players etc and teams got over their heads uh and it outstripped the income at the time the league was popular we drew some huge crowds in new york tampa bay portland etc and everybody was left shaking their heads in 84 when the league ceased operations but it didn't have the checks and balances in place that they put in with mls and that's why it didn't last so before we talk about your time outside of um, Portland with the U.S. Soccer Federation, et cetera, which I'm excited to get to. I've got to ask something from your bio that I'm just, you refereed in Portland, refereed soccer from 1978 to 1986, which is an interesting period when you think the Timbers weren't here in 82. So you probably refereed some Timbers in men's league uh, if you were doing that. But what was it like refereeing? And what was the soccer landscape like in that time here in Portland? There's probably a lot of your older audience that have horrible memories of be, being out there in the middle. I don't know. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, I, I actually I took my referees course when I was in Boise. Uh -huh. and I was a beginning referee. And then when I came back in around 80, I, when I was working with the Timbers, I wasn't doing too much. But I, you know, from 82 on, I started to referee and, you know, took uh, – uh, did a lot of men's league games out at Delta Park <laughs> uh, in the mud on Sundays. And it's not the Delta Park. It, it is now for those that no, might think, right? No, it was, no. Yeah. Uh, but, but it was full every week. And uh, I remember the, the day Mount St. Helens blew up, I was on my way to referee a game at Delta Park. I don't know how I remember that, but I was. And yeah. uh, used to referee tournaments out there. As I got a little bit better, I got better assignments, you know, Nike tournament, uh, and then worked my way up into high school and college games. Um, and um, high school was wild back then, you know, in the 70s. You know, there was a lot of contact and stuff and inexperienced coaches that just had no pedigree with the game. And so, uh, you know, we knew that when we went out to referee a game, if it was going to be a problem or not, you know. Uh, but I refereed some of the players that went on to play with the Portland uh, the uh, Western Soccer Alliance team. Mm -hmm. And uh, uh, my first professional game was FC Portland, FC Seattle, one of the games at, uh, at the stadium. And I can't remember exactly when that was, but uh, yeah. Yeah, and so for people who don't know, that was essentially, um, you know, people like Clive Charles and his contemporaries saying, we, you know, we need something First of all, it gave their players, the college players around here, more training than they would have had, right? Because they can play in this league, more competition than they would have, uh, but also a professional experience because there was no national professional soccer league at the time. No, no. And uh, there were some good players that were playing back then. Um, I'm still not sure how I got assigned to that professional game, but I did uh, a couple of them. And then later on, when I went back, when I went to Greenville, South Carolina, I started refereeing again, and I did a few games in the in the old USISL yeah. games down in Charleston, etc. Um, but I had a lot of fun refereeing, and it was an ultimate challenge for me as a guy who loves soccer, and uh, to be out in the middle uh, trying to control the game. You're you're either you're either like an adventure or you're crazy, one of the two, uh, but. It's, it's a character builder, bar none, 
And so, okay, so speaking of soccer, and I'm going to go back to college soccer here, you've got a story. You were actually um, covering the longest game in college soccer history in 1985, and you wrote about it for the New York Times, or you were supposed to, but you couldn't meet your deadline because the game was just so long. Yeah. What happened with that? The deputy sports editor at the New York Times was a lady named Lori Mifflin. She used to cover the Cosmos. She was one of the few women, one of the first women to go in locker rooms to actually start covering. And Lori called me up one day and she goes, hey, uh, Americans playing UCLA up in Tacoma. Can you cover it for us? And I said, sure. She said, I want you to file something right afterwards. You know, our deadline's like 1030. 1030 something. Eastern? 1030, I think it was 1030 West. Okay. It was their last edition, you know, maybe at, I don't know whether it was late. I can't remember exactly what it was. Mm-hmm. And can you, can you, sorry to interrupt, but yeah. can you tell us how you would file a story? Because it's not like you just emailed it to the printer. Uh, no, back then you would, uh, uh, you either had a Tandy 102, although that might've been even before that. Um uh, most likely we had we took portable typewriters with us, typed it, and then there usually was a fax service in the press box where they would fax something for you, or uh, or um, yeah. Uh, and then by the time I went to the Federation, they were using the old Tandy 102s. Did you ever see those? No. It was a Radio Shack computer. It was very very small, like a small typewriter, but it had a lightning fast keyboard and it was digital digital number letters, and then you could just hook it up to a phone, put the, put the receiver right into it, and it would transmit your story like that. And that changed everything. So every reporter on the road used the Tandy 102, you know, that little thing. Yeah. Um, check out a picture of it when you can. I will. I'm writing that down. Little, small little uh, item. But I used that all the way through at the, the Federation. I uh, used to send um faxes out off that thing you could send you know after a game at the federation i used to send maybe 200 faxes around the country of our game report and it would all go off that little machine so i was supposed to the game went nine overtimes and in those days there was no uh no shootouts game just went on until it was over was it a golden goal like if somebody had scored or yeah yeah, yeah. Okay. it was the first goal and uh it was american university versus ucla and it went nine overtimes uh and each overtime i think was 20 minutes so uh it was went a long time it was a long game that's and, three games in one day yeah oh yeah back yeah. to back to back yeah and um when the game was over, of course, the deadline was gone, and I called somebody up, I can't remember, and they said, why don't you file something for Sports Monday? <laughs> so uh, they ran my story. My story actually got a little bit more play. And the headline said, longest game to UCLA. And uh, and it said, by John Polis, special to the New York Times. So uh, it was pretty pretty special for me to to have a byline from the New York Times. That was the only time I ever did anything for them, but it was a memorable game for sure. Well, that's, yeah, I mean, that's that's got to be the holy grail to a degree of, of bylines, especially when you think you, that game was in Tacoma, which is, so for people that don't know, Longview, Washington is about 45 minutes north of Portland, kind of between 
Tacoma and, and Portland, I guess. And so I'm thinking back, a 16-year-old kid walks into the Longview Daily News, and here he is, you know, not far from where he started writing a byline for the New York Times. Yeah, you know, I didn't think of it at the time, but uh, things were moving fast for me back then. You know, once I started covering the Timbers, um, my interest totally switched to soccer. I loved it. I started thinking about international aspirations. The game was the game had a world championship. National teams used to go there. I heard that the Federation had a PR guy. And uh -huh. I wonder, I wonder what it would be like working for the Federation, you know? And uh lo and behold, huh? There you are from 1989 to 1993. You're the director of communications for the men's and women's soccer federation. So yeah, I used to go I, I yeah, go ahead. Oh, so, I was I was <laughs> If you're going to pick a period of American soccer where you're going to see some of the most monumental things that have happened, 1989 to 1993 is just about as, as good as you can do when you think about the first Women's World Cup, Trinidad and Tobago, the first, you know, the men qualifying for the 90 World Cup. And and then that's just on the, the front end of 94 World Cup here, 96 Major League Soccer starting. But how did you get that job? I used to go down to an event called the World Collegiate Soccer Championship, promoted by a guy in El Paso. Um, and he would invite the NCAA champion, the NAIA champion, a team from Europe and a team from Mexico. And they do a, an event, a weekend event. And he promoted it as a big event. And it was all done above board with permission of the NCAA and the NAIA. And he created this event down there in a an area where there was no soccer it was very successful I, I ran across him quite by accident in the timbers press box one time and he said and i was introduced as a guy that used to do that did some television for the timbers and he goes why don't you come down and do our tv for us down there and i said oh well i thought i'd never hear from him and two months later a plane ticket came in the mail and so i wound up going down there and working that event and while I'm down there, I got a call from a guy named Sunil Galati. Okay. And Sunil was a 33-year-old guy running the national team program. He says, John, I don't, you don't know me, but I know you. I know your work. And uh, it turns out when I was down in that at that event, I met Paul Kennedy, editor of Soccer America. Mm -hmm. And Paul told Sunil of me. Okay. And so Sunil called me up. We're having this series of games on the west coast i'm bringing in 40 players for the national team we're going to use different player pools over two or three weeks and there's going to be seven games in various cities i need pr help can you come down and i and i was available and i went down there and he said i don't have a job for you this is 1988 mm -hmm. uh, i don't have a job for you but if we get the world cup and the announcement is this summer I'll have something. There's a good chance. So I go down there, work these of this event. July 4th, 1988, they announced the World Cup would be held in the United States in 94. Um, while I'm down, while I'm down in Texas, um, one of our guests at that event was Professor Julio Mazzei, who was advisor to Pele. And he for a time, he was coach of the Cosmos as well, but he was a well-known um, soccer personality. And I got to know him real well. 
And I get that call from Sunil, and I I told he I said I just got a call from the Federation. They want me to go to work there. What do you think? He goes, John, the World Cup is going to come to the United States. That's all he said. <laughs> like you're crazy if you don't do it. You know? Yeah. And this. So was, did he tell you that before? Yeah. The yeah. Announcement, right? He, uh, knew. he said. He said before. Yeah. He kind of he knew. I don't know how he knew, but people know, you know. Right. And so, uh, so I went down there and, and did that stint down in California. I went to the Federation, and a couple of things happened, and I found myself in. I went as the number two, and I found myself as the number one by Christmas, and that was heading into qualifying in '89, and I was the guy, mm -hmm. you know, and I was the only guy. There was no department. It was just me. So I got it. Okay. So 89 is, is, is big. And I, you know, it's funny. I was talking to uh, a few years ago. I did an essay on the 35 yard shootout. I'm a big fan of it. And yeah. I interviewed Tony Miola and he said, you know, the week before that, before he headed down there, I mean, even like up to the, just before he got on the plane, he was at the university of Virginia taking batting practice because, you know, the soccer thing wasn't a guarantee, right? But maybe baseball will work out. Then he gets on a plane and goes down there for that that game at Port-au-Prince and things change. But I'm wondering, because I know that's what it was like for the players. Was it that way for you as well? Like, even though you knew the World Cup was coming, was it a calculated chance or was it just like something could break through? Or how did you see soccer going for you? And then after that, could you kind of move into that game? Well, I was at the Federation, so I figured that was the place to be. And uh, I was looking forward to all the travel with the teams um it was the, the federation's budget was slim back in those days um federation president warner fricker had to loan the federation money out of his personal accounts to get the team qualified through qualifying and uh that came out later he was a volunteer mm -hmm. president of u.s soccer um the team did not have the marketing legs that it has these days you know, and uh, and in fact, uh, I think their equipment deal with Adidas was equipment and maybe a couple hundred thousand dollars, you know, and and they supplied everything, boots, shoes, uniforms. We were we were we were all Adidas, and uh, um, and then when the World Cup, after the World Cup in Italy. The uh, Hank Steinbrusher took over as the. Uh, uh, might have been before, or right after he took over as Secretary General and renegotiated the contract, and it was a great contract, like a million dollars and something, which is still peanuts, you yeah. know. Uh, but uh, it was a big step up, and uh, the Federation was kind of on its way, you know. Um, we got down to Italy, we. You know, we, we qualified, we went, and, um, but, yeah, I mean, the, it was uncertain um, that the, the Federation was was based in Colorado Springs mm -hmm. at the U.S. Olympic Training Center. Um, it was great being there because all the athletes were there, and, uh, and soccer had its headquarters there. It had been there for some time. And then while I was there, we moved to Chicago. And what was it like that the week leading up in that that game in Trinidad and Tobago? Because 
Yeah. Um, there's there's never going to be enough about about that time for my my money. I'd love to know about that. The USA had got through qualifying in fits and starts. We'd win, we'd lose, we'd tie. We never could quite hit on all cylinders. Um, and it got down to USA versus Trinidad. Actually, Trinidad versus USA. Right. In port, of, in port of Spain. We needed a win. They needed a tie. Um, and so down we go to this game. Uh, we flew in. I'm sure people have told you this story, but I'll, if you don't mind, uh, we flew in into the evening and there was two or 3,000 people outside the plane chanting, no way USA, <laughs> as we got off the plane. And uh, we got on the bus and people are pounding their hands on the sides of the bus. No way, USA, you know. And I remember Tony, Tony Miola said, Jeez, let's get our uniforms out and play this bitch right now. Yeah. You know? <laughs> he was ready to go, you know. And so these were young guys, you know, most of them in their early 20s. Um, so I don't know what happened, but I got invited on a local radio station during the week. Oh, wonderful. And so we were there. Uh, we were at a hotel and cars driving around the hotel in the middle of the night, honking their horns and keeping us awake. And, you know, we had training and things. We went down two or three days before. Uh, and uh, I go on this radio station and this this guy, he looked like a Rastafarian as a DJ and he had long dreads and Everybody goes, in two minutes, we're going to meet Mr. Polis from the U.S. soccer team, and he's going to tell us how he likes Trinidad. And so I, I looked out into the lobby, and all the employees are crowded around listening to this, because I was a curious-looking guy from the United States. And so he asked me about the team, and and I had my PR hat on. I said, you know, we're just delighted to be here. What a great day for Trinidad. They had declared the next day holiday after the right. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, to celebrate them going to the World Cup. All they needed was a tie. So uh I said it was it's a great, it's a great week for the Trinidad and, and Tobago fans. Um, they've had a great season, their team. We're pleased to be here. And I said, uh, you know, the, the stadium is going to be sold out. It's it's like a one in a million times for everybody that loves the game. I said, there's only one thing that bothers me. He says, what's that? I said, we hate to spoil such a big party. <laughs> he just laughed. Everybody was laughing, you know. And I said it kind of tongue in cheek and kind of laughing, you know. Uh -huh. They thought it was hilarious. So we win the game. This guy's chasing me around with a microphone. Mr. Polis, you predicted it. You predicted it. How did you do that? You know? <laughs> yeah. Anyway, it was hilarious. Um, the, the game was, the day was a day to remember. We were invited for breakfast up at the ambassador's place there. And it was a beautiful morning and we were eating outside and you could see the stadium way down below 
and it was a solid sea of red from 9 a.m. in the morning on. Game didn't start till three, but it was solid. And they had carnival and uh, dancing and celebrations going on. The, the stadium was way oversold. Um, there was bogus tickets going around. They had all kinds of problems. So we had to go down there and get there early. And of course, I spent the I spent the game in the press box, pretty quiet, you know, and. Um, you know, the, the pressure was on everybody. And we went out there and got that early goal and and uh, it, it stood up. And I'll remember walking down. I had to walk down through the grandstands, almost like a high school setup, you know, out of the press box. I'm walking down through fans and I had my blazer on from the Federation and they're all shaking hands with me. Good luck in Italy. You know, fans were tremendous, you know, good sports. That's great. And uh and then in the locker room was uh, a great celebration, a great relief. The U.S. had qualified for the World Cup for the first time in 40 years. Yeah. And old Bob Gansler, the manager, Mr. Deadpan, standing in the corner, I went up to him and he goes, John, just another game, John. we got to get ready for Italy now. <laughs> you know, but what a slog it was for us, us to get there. There was so much uh, consternation. You know, will the U.S. do it? You know, and then, you know, we've been we've been awarded the World Cup. And so people all over the world will say, how are they going to host the World Cup if they don't even make this one? You know, never mind the fact that we hadn't been there for 40 years. You know, we were expected to qualify. Uh, so the pressure was on all around the Federation, our Federation uh, senior guys. From FIFA, they were looking to see progress from the United States, and um, we made it. Huge. And so you you go to the World Cup in 1990, yeah. and, and it's a, like you said, it's a big deal. The first time the U.S. has been to the World Cup in a while. And, you know, the team didn't get out of the group stage, but they did eventually earn some respect. What was yeah. the experience in Italy like in, in 1990? We get there in our first game against Czechoslovakia. Oof. Thomas Skouravi, a yeah. bunch of great players on that team. Um, our players remember in the tunnel, these guys looked huge. Our guys are like 20, 21, 22, 23. These guys are men. They've been playing in the European Pro Leagues, you know. And, um, um, well, let me talk about press relations because – it was difficult being the press officer for a team coached by Bob, by Bob Gansler at the time. Uh, Bob was totally focused on getting the team qualified. And I was always asking for extras, you know. Um, we got reporters coming out. Can you do this? Can you do that? Um, by the time we got to the World Cup, I had convinced him that I could come up with a schedule that would work, you know. And so we decided that with the reporters coming in, um, with the reporters coming in, we would do, I think we'd do one day where we would do post-practice post press conference, and then two days, nothing, and then one day. So every third day, we'd do something. It worked out great. But FIFA has a thing after every game. They have a flash interview, and they want one player for the flash interview. And we had decided that because our player, our players were so young, 
we wanted to get them back and focused right away. Regardless of what happened in the game, we'd send our team captain, Mike Windishman. And so it was decided that Mike would go. Mike knew he was going to go. Game was over. We get hammered 5-1. And uh, Paul Caligiuri scored a goal right at the end. And so the FIFA public relations guy comes down. He goes, we, we want Paul Caligiuri for Flash. And I said, sorry, I can't get him for you. And he goes, why? I said, because we've designated our team captain to come. He goes, what do you mean? I said, that's what we're doing. We're sending the team captain. He says, what is it with Bob Gansler? Why does he need to do something different? Caligiuri scored the goal. We want him. I said, sorry. I said, let me tell you something. We got a team that averages like 23 years old. We just got beat bad. We have to play. We have to play Italy pretty soon, right? This midweek coming up. We had to go down to Rome. He says, fine. You beat Italy then stormed off anyway we sent windishman for the post game deal so the team's in shock semi-shock you know um we played in we, we were staying in Tyrrhenia, which was uh 20 30 miles from florence which are which was our first game our next game was in rome in the olympic stadium in rome against the host team italy in Everybody thought we were going to get blasted. And uh, Bob Gensler is a, kind of a soft-spoken guy and not easily impressed. <laughs> but um, we were working really good together then. And one of our press our press briefings after practice, a German reporter comes in. And, he, and I always knew Bob, Bob when, if he was totally disagreeing with you and about ready to explode, he would laugh. He would go <laughs> like that, you know. Uh -huh. So this German guy comes up and he goes, Coach Gansler, how what would be acceptable margin of loss to Italy? Four goals? Five goals? And yeah, Bob would go, <laughs> Well, I don't, yeah, I'm not sure exactly what he said at the time, but we managed to answer. And so off we go to Rome. And the, the, the U.S. bus was easily identifiable. And so the fans would come out of their houses or when we stopped at an intersection and they would hold up their hands like this, showing 10 mm -hmm. fingers, like we're going to score 10 on you. And... uh so we go down there. Um, Italy goes up 1-0. Our guys are totally awed by Olympic Stadium, et cetera, and all that. Pleased to be there. Olymp uh, Italy goes up 1-0. And then uh, before the half, we started settling down. And um, Italy gets a penalty kick and misses. A penalty kick. It could have been 2-0 at half. It was 1-0. Second half, we come out, regroup, and we started stringing passes together. It was something else. And uh, the guys were just, everything was clicking. And we had one shot. Peter Vermees had a free kick from the, excuse me, it was, it was Bruce Murray from the left side corner of the penalty area. And he could just crease him from there, you know. He hit a right-footed shot that hit off of Walter Zenga's 
hands. He parried it down. Peter Vermes was there, followed up with a left-footed shot that hit Zenga's posterior <laughs> and went out of bounds. Okay. That If that goes in, we're 1-1. And the way we were playing, it, we could have got a point out of it. Game's over. Um, 1-0. Kind of a moral victory for the guys, you know. Uh, the, the locker room was quite ebullient afterwards because they felt that they'd earned respect. The Italian players were coming over and congratulating us. And I'm on my way down to the, I'm on my way down to the locker room. And I noticed this fellow trying to get in the locker room. He was an athletic looking black man and he looked really familiar to me. And I could not figure out who was it. And I, I was so interested in the guy that I stopped right there before I went in because there was security there. And I just kind of held up a second because I was trying to figure out what was going on. And I could see he wanted to get in the locker room. And all of a sudden it dawns on me, it's boxer Marvin Hagler, former middleweight champion, who was in Italy doing movies at the time. And so I just clicked in. So I yelled over there, hey, Marvin. He goes, yeah, man. I said, you need some help? He goes, yeah, I'd like to go in and see the players. They played really well. So I sold the security guard. Can he go in with me? And he said, yeah. So he went in. So that was the night I rescued the world champion. Uh, yeah. Distress, you know. But uh, the, the team the team played well. And uh, we got some a measure of respect. We had one more game to go. Back to Florence. And um, we lost to Austria, much closer game, but played, you know, we didn't win any games. We won a lot of respect, I think. Um, but when you go out in three games, it's like, you know, and, you know, that was the first time I began to experience anti-Americanism, you know, as a guy, a small town guy from the United States. Um, there was a certain amount of resentment that we were playing their game or trying to play their game. Mm -hmm. well, I'm sure you've run into that, you know, even mm -hmm. in the United States, you know, and what were we doing there? You know, you guys don't even play soccer in the United States, do you? And then the joke started up about 94. Will the stadiums be empty? You know, will anybody come out to watch the World Cup? And of course, it went down as the most successful World Cup in history in terms of revenues and, and all that. But um, yeah, it was a it, it was a humbling experience to go to the World Cup because all of us had never been to anything like that before. We kind of knew what to expect, but you never know once you're on the big stage. You know, we had, um, you know, Walter Barr was our head of delegation, the great Walter Barr who played on the 1950 team. And he was the subject of much interest from the press because they remember him and the team that beat England back in 1950, right. you know, the last time the U S was in the world cup. Yeah, that's right. Right. Yeah. yeah. And so what I'm, what I'm seeing also in a lot of your, these stories is you're having, I mean, I, I think I said something about this earlier in our discussion about what a period to go through and to be in the position you're in. But even if I think back to the seventies with the timbers in Portland and the NASL and just all these things that are just firsts and they'll, there, there won't be another, new experience in soccer for the United States. I mean, you know, will we win it? I don't know. But but these really significant cultural milestones, 
the very next year, 1991, you're in the same position, but this time it's the Women's World Cup, which wasn't at the time called that, but it was the Women's World Cup. And the United States wins the first Women's World Cup in 1991. Yeah, FIFA reluctantly, maybe it was proactively, I don't know, but they were reluctant enough that they wouldn't even call it a World Cup. It, it was the first FIFA World Championship for women's football held in the, Pacific, in the uh, People's Republic of China. The head coach was Anson Dorrance of North Carolina, uh, still coaching North Carolina after 20-some-odd national championships. Uh, great guy, PR man's dream to work with. Um, we went over there and, you know, won most of our games. The, it, was the, it was the introduction of the American women on the world stage. Um, some teams like Brazil were over there and expecting to win, but they did not. And so uh, we had an intrepid group of women that went over there and brought the trophy home. Um, we did a couple of, we did a, a press phone call every few days back to the U.S., and I had maybe a handful of people on there. The women won it. It got a little little blip on the bottom of the sports page, I think, when they won it. Mm -hmm. uh, the only national writer with, with us that I remember was Roscoe Nance from USA Today, and uh, he and I traveled together quite a bit, and uh, there's another guy that gave soccer a chance, you know, and convinced his editors that it was a good thing to go to. And the, the journalists that were along had gobs of stories about the culture of China and being in a pretty much a totalitarian a country. We had lots of escorts with us, you know, um, which we found out were CCP people, you know, mm -hmm. um, but it was a tremendous, tremendous experience. And, you know, the, the team, Anson Dorans, uh, Captain April Heinrich, who I think was just elected to the Hall of Fame. Um, April was from Seattle. And all those great players. Uh, I think Mia Hamm was like 17 on that team. Um, so Michelle, was, Michelle was, Akers. Huh? Michelle Akers was on the team. Michelle, right? Yeah, Michelle Akers was the big star of the tournament. Mm -hmm. uh, scored the a lot of goals uh, <laughs> and despite her injuries at the time. And um, yeah, uh, that was 91. Um, and, you know, two or three years later when I was with Umbro, we were the first soccer manufacturer to sign a woman team endorser. And that was Michelle Akers. Yeah. So tell me about, okay. So after your time with the national team, you do end up with Umbro. You get the call from a very familiar source which I've also said earlier, if he calls, answer the phone, but by all means. And you end up with Umbro, and you've told me something interesting about the start of Umbro, about the name, um, and then can you tell us sort of how you ended up there and, and about that endorsement as well? Well, you learn about the history of Umbro. You have to. Um, our slogan was only soccer since 1924. And uh, we were going up against brands like Nike, multi-sports, Adidas, multi-sports, and we called ourselves the purists. We were the only soccer company. You know, you want real soccer gear? Come to us. And so Warren Mercereau was my boss, but Mick Hoban called me. I was still at the Federation. Things were not going at the Federation like I had wanted them to at that time. I hadn't really thought about leaving because the World Cup was the next year. This is 93. And uh, 
um, I don't think anybody thought that I'd be leaving the Federation. And uh, Mick, Mick called and says, hey, do you know any young PR upstarts? He says, we need to add somebody in Umbro. We're thinking of adding a PR position. And I said, gee, Mick, I said, I don't know. I don't really know. I said, I'm not a young PR upstart, but what about me? You know, I said something like that. He goes, you want to leave the Federation? I said, you know, I don't know. But I said, maybe it's time to think about it a little bit. He says, you want me to set up a meeting with Warren? And I said, uh, yeah. And so we met at the coaches convention, clandestine like meeting on a Sunday morning. And I went down there and interviewed and took the job and went in and, and left the Federation as the director of communications um, and went to, went to Greenville. And uh, it was the most rewarding six years of my life working for that company it was just a great place to be we had brazil under contract we had pele under contract um all the guys mick mick was kind of the ringleader of the marketing group he and warren and they brought people in who had the soccer culture and who all would fit together and we're all on the same page it was just a great place to be you know the the an email would go around in the middle of the afternoon saying, hey, we're having a kick around at four today. Who's in, you know? Yeah. And so we'd have like seven, eight guys go out the local field and, and have a game, you know? Um, we, the Stone family that had Umbro uh, donated enough money to build Furman University's soccer stadium at the time. And we we brought Pele in for the dedication into wow. that, you know? Because he was a talk about endorsements. Pele was a number of athlete. Yeah, that's what we'd was. say now, right? Yeah, and it, and, yeah. Go ahead. Well, I was going to say, and even when you were with Umbro between ninety three and ninety nine, you were the um, in the ninety four World Cup. You were the press liaison for Brazil. Yeah, um, since I had been to the World Cup with the United States, and we had Brazil. Um, my boss offered me to the coach, Carlos Alberto Pereira, and he came in for the uh, coaches convention one year, and uh, and, I, and he actually put me on a program with him, and I think that was probably the test. So I'm sitting at this table, Carlos Alberto Pereira is on my right, and Pele's on my left, and I'm moderating a conversation about soccer, and we're talking about Pele's career, we're talking about Brazil, styles of play. And afterwards, uh, the coach says, excellent job, John. Thank you. And so sometime after that, I get a call. It's from Carlos Alberto Pereira calling me from Brazil. John, if you came with us for the World Cup, do you think Umbro would release you to come with us? <laughs> I know my boss put him up to it, you know. And I said, sure, you know, I think so, you know. So Brazil flew into Los Gatos on their Varig jet, and I met them. And I was with them for the whole World Cup. I, I wasn't allowed to stay in the same place that they were, because that was just for the team. And uh, But I was at all the practices, all the games, flew on their aircraft. It was, uh, and, and I celebrated in the locker room with them afterwards. It was great. I just, I wish I could just let that sit for like five minutes, what you just said. <laughs> Because yeah. who wouldn't who wouldn't want to utter those words and just 
from an that American, experience. An American from Longview, Washington, is in the World Cup winning locker room. And, with Brazil. Uh, with Brazil, yeah, yeah. I mean, and, any team, but. Yeah, yeah. And that was the team that there was a lot of criticism. You know, they didn't attack enough. And, you know, at one point, Coach Pereira said, all I want them to do is play a little defense, just a little bit of defense, you know. Right. And uh, and they, you know, they were they were good. And uh, you know, we had the Babeto Romario tandem up front scoring goals. Uh-huh. And, uh huh. And there was a rumor that they didn't like each other, you know, because Babeto was this kind of conservative guy, uh, and. Romario was kind of a wild man, you know. And so I suggested to the coach about two-thirds of the way through the World Cup, could we do a press conference with those two? I said, you know, there's all these rumors about them. Why don't we get them on the same stage and they can talk about each other? Mm-hmm. He says, ask the players if they want to do it, okay. So we did. And uh, Francisco Marcos was our team liaison for the World Cup Organizing Committee. So Francisco was with me, he speaks Portuguese. So we had this press conference right before the final, a huge press conference. We had it at a hotel, German press, Italian, everybody showed up. They wanted to see these guys talk about each other. Romario got up there and he goes, Babeto's a family man, you know, he's home early, etc. Me, I'm more of a street cat. I like to get out there, you know. Yeah. that was a, a highlight for me at the World Cup of organizing that press conference and seeing those two guys being able to get their message out. And of course, uh, Romario went on. He's been a senator down there in Brazil for a number of years, or was, got into politics. Um, and then a few years back, we had an event here in Colorado, and Dunga came in for that with. Uh, the backup goalkeeper from that team. And I got a chance to see those guys and chat with them. The assistant coach on that team was the great Mario Zagallo, who played with Pelé in 58. And then um, two years later, they came back for the Olympics. They had me back again. So I went with them to the Olympics and Zagallo managed that team. And uh, they got beat. They got beat by, I want to say, Japan upset us. Uh, in that and I think we got bronze fourth place in that but that was the Atlanta Olympics amazing yeah do you mind if I I got do you mind if I ask you two more no okay Um, so given what you've seen in American soccer and it's been quite a range as we've been talking how important looking back was the North American Soccer League and, and how important was the work between even the NASL's demise in 84 and Major League Soccer start in 1996. For, how important was that for what we have right now? I think it was everything. Um, the, if, if, you, if you think you're building a building and you start with on level ground with nothing there, you got to put something down first. And that NASL was the foundation. It was run, organized at that time by a tireless promoter named Phil Woosnam, a Welshman who was a former professional player, personal friends of Vic Crow, by the way, because they both played at the Villa together. And uh, and so they knew each other really well. 
And uh, in fact, I remember Phil came to town in Portland and I met him. I went over to meet him to do a story at Jake's Jake's Crawfish. Yeah. In Portland. And he picked up a napkin and he sketched out how the league was going to grow and it would be up to a certain amount of teams and how it could expand in the United States, et cetera. Now that league was fairly short lived. You know, it went from, well, the, the, the beginnings of NASL went from what, 67 all the way up to 84, but a lot was accomplished in those days. And a lot of the players that came to Portland stayed, um, um, you know, there's a lot of people in Portland that think the NA, that soccer started in 96 in Portland. Wrong. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. You know, we put 33,000 in there in 1975 for a game. And that, that the, the seeds grew into fruit with the first edition of the Portland Timbers. And there was a pent-up demand that was there. When the new team came in, I was surprised at how quickly attendance took off but then when i thought about it i wasn't you know there was a lot of interest there in the sport i mean just there was just a demand there but i remember um i can't remember where i was living at the time i might have been in florida but i came home in one of those first games of the timbers remember when nagby hit that tremendous goal yes the up the knee and then the, the little far post dip yeah i watched that on tv up in longview i could not believe the crowd i could not believe the the uh, the uh, enthusiasm of the crowd, et cetera, et cetera. And boy, was I proud, having been a part of it back then and seeing that. And I was telling my kids about it. They they got it, but they didn't get it because they weren't right. around back then, you know. But, you know, it makes an old guy feel really good when you go back and you see uh, people lined up to get into that Timbers Army section, what, an hour or two before the game, you know. <laughs> means a lot to a lot of people and i'm glad you said that because i think we've talked about this and this is kind of where we can bring it home um but you you know we talked about this kid that walked into a you know news 16 year old in longview walked into a right into a newspaper and here you've contributed to the game and you've seen it grow in portland right now we've got the two i think best american soccer franchises in the Portland Timbers and Portland Thorns and the the growth of uh soccer that I mean what we have now we're lucky we're we're spoiled but it's like you said it's a byproduct of some people came here in 1975 and they brought everybody in and people wanted to be a part of it and they built and even was it was when it wasn't here from uh, 1982 to say uh some of the earlier years um you know when SC Portland came when Art Dixon brought in the an earlier iteration of the Timbers and all the way throughout it was building, it was growing. And so I hope that you, if you walk into Providence Park to watch the Thorns or watch the Timbers, you know, see what you built and see what your contemporaries built, because it's not well, just also in Portland, it's across the country. Yeah, you said some people came and boy, did they ever. Yeah, Mick Hoban, Jimmy Conway, Clive Charles, these are players that came to play for the team and wound up staying and contributing, you know, and staying there. Look what they built, you know. And then by chance, Louisiana Pacific buys the team and Harry Merlot then goes on 
to invest money at the University of Portland and their facilities and all that. So it was like one thing built upon the other. But that first year, 1975, which not a lot of people remember, was magical, you know, and that that went over Seattle. I'll never forget it, you know. There was guys on the field with a sign that said Jimmy Kelly for mayor. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. You know, it was just like all spontaneous, you know, uh, from a bunch of people that, you know, if they'd gone to the co college football game the week before, none of these people would have been there. This was a different group. And I, uh, the Oregonian asked me to do a magazine section article after the season for their weekend section. And the, the title was, Why Did Portland Get a Kick Out of Soccer? <laughs> and the point that I was making in that story was there was a lot of non-sports people that just came out to look. And they got caught up in it, you know, and uh, the excitement of it. And, you know, yeah, I met Jimmy Kelly or I met Willie Anderson last week at the team party, you know, and he signed my shirt or whatever, you know, and Guys like Mick, Mick had done it. Mick Hoban had done it in Denver. He knew what it took, and he did it in Atlanta before that. He knew they had to do it. And Vic was a coach of the Atlanta Chiefs way back then and player coach way back. And they knew that if you go into a, a town like that, you had to be a missionary. And that's what they were. They went to schools, high schools, grade schools, you know, uh, juggling, demonstrations, uh, just to build sport. It was a great time. John, thank you so much. I really appreciate it. Billy, it's a pleasure. Thanks for having me. You ain't got to be 200 pounds or a giant at 7-3 to play this game called soccer, which is growing rapidly. You can hear it on the radio. You will see it on TV. But when the Portland boys appear, you will hear them sing with glee. Green is the colour, soccer is the game. We're the Portland Timbers, and winning is our aim. So let's be 